This is the day that you have made. Whatever comes, I won't complain. For all my hope is in your name. And now your joy awaits my praise. Give thanks. Set my feet on higher ground. So here I stand. You are my God. Your faithfulness, my solid rock.
the life you gave your body was broken your love poured out you bled and you died for me there on the cross you breathed your last as you were crucified you gave it all for me Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Hallelujah, King forever. We thank you for the cross. There in the ground, sealed in the darkness, lifeless lay the frame of the Father, Son in agony. He watched His only Son be sacrificed. He gave it all for me.
my sins are scarlet You have made me white as snow You have made me white as snow You have made me white as snow Hallelujah, it is finished. Hallelujah, it is done. Hallelujah, King forever. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the cross. Father, that is our prayer this morning. Our prayer of thanks for all that you have done for us. We don't thank you for the cross this morning because we believe you're still there. We thank you for the cross this morning because of what you've done. Dying for our sins. Sacrificing yourself for us when there was no other way. But Father, this morning we thank you for coming off that cross. We thank you for living and being alive and making us alive today. Through your love for us, through what you've done. There's not a single one of us here this morning, God who doesn't have so much to thank you for. Everything we have is because of you, because of what you've done for us. And so God, today I just pray that we continue to thank you. Not because it's a time of year where we say Thanksgiving, because God, that is the state of who we wanna be constantly and ever grateful for what you have done for us, for who you are to us, for who we get to be because of who you are. Father, be with us as we continue to worship this morning, whether it's through the giving of your word to us, whether it's through the taking of the elements that you have shown us how to take and partake in. Father, may we continue to just say thankful, thank you, and be grateful for what we have and for who you are. Bless us now where we are, Father. God, I pray that you be with us in all aspects of who we are today. We don't come into this place unknown, but fully known by you. Thank you for that. Thank you for who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. All right, full transparency here. As a staff, we totally goofed in our scheduling. And, uh, and we scheduled me to be on for the connection moment on the same day that I am preaching. And so you guys just get double dose. I know. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I hope that that's okay with you. I hope that you don't grow tired of me. It's going to, it actually, it works really well because it just all, uh, it just all flows together. And so uh, I'll probably, I'll do my connection moment. I'll run off and do a wardrobe change and I'll be back for my sermon <laughs> just so there's very clear uh, um, a break between the two. Okay. So um, somebody tell me next week starts what? Advent, yes, I knew my teens would. I, I hammer this in my teens all the time, right? Next week starts Advent. It's the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a time where we, uh, where we anticipate or we look forward to 
Christmas. All right, some of us start much earlier than others. We decorated our house, put up our tree yesterday because we just needed to. All right, we needed that in our house. So Advent is a time of celebration. Uh, it's a time of looking forward to. It's a time of anticipating. In the in the spring, we uh, we celebrate or we observe what is called Lent. It usually starts off. We do an Ash Wednesday service, and then we uh, we kind of lead up into Easter. With Lent. But do you ever wonder what are those things? Like why do we do those things? Why do we, why do we observe Advent? Why do we observe Lent? What in the world is this all about? I want to talk to you this morning um, just really briefly about what we call the church calendar or the liturgical calendar. All right, I think we got a picture of it here real quick just so you can see what I'm talking about. I know that you're just like, all right, instant yawn fest, right? Snooze fest here, right? Liturgy, tradition, church calendar, wah, 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 right? But I want you to hear this because I think that this is significant. Now, obviously, when you look around, we are not a super liturgical church, right? Like, you can go to other churches, lots of other churches, and find much more uh, liturgical elements than what we have here at Marysville Church of the Nazarene. But we do find value in these seasons throughout the liturgical or the church calendar. So you'll see on there we have, uh, we have Advent. Advent's the beginning of the church year. So we start a new church year next year. Now for Harold's purposes and the money purposes, we don't actually start a new church year. That's not till May, right? May 1, May 1. And so this is a different church year. This is liturgical. We start with Advent, and then that leads into Christmas, obviously. And then we have what is called Ordinary Time, and then we go into Lent, and then Tridum, Trid, I don't know if, how you say that, Tridum, whatever. That's basically Passion Week, leading into Easter. Uh, so we have Easter, and then a big old hunk of ordinary time. We have all of these uh, seasons built into the church and the liturgical calendar. So why? What's the big deal with this? What, what in the world is this? Why, why are you even talking to me about this? Um, I think that there is something significant about rhythms and seasons in our lives. We try to do it in, in other aspects of our lives. In other, we, we build in rhythms to our life, right? We, we try to build in routine. We try to build in these things into our life. And I think it's a significant thing that we practice in the church. It's, it's truly an opportunity for us to be directed by a long-standing universal church to allow the history and the tradition of this church to say that this is a season where we are going to focus on a particular posture. And so for Advent, we focus, we focus our posture on anticipation and waiting and looking forward and kind of building that excitement leading toward Christmas. And then Christmas comes. And Christmas starts on what day? Yeah, that wasn't a trick question. Christmas starts December 25th. It's Christmas Day. We start Christmas, and then we have 12 days of Christmas. You guys know that the 12 days of Christmas don't start before Christmas, right? They start Christmas Day, and they lead up to what? Somebody, church calendar quiz. What is it? Yes, ordinary time, but not yet. There's a day that we lead up to. The 12 days of Christmas leads us to Epiphany. And so Epiphany is when the wise men came to see Jesus, and that kind of uh, launches Jesus' ministry uh, into the Gentile world, basically, is what we celebrate. So there's 12 days of Christmas, and it's, it's where we take time to focus on rejoicing, rejoicing our Savior who came to live on earth with us. And so we celebrate, we have a posture of celebration and rejoicing. And then that leads us 
into Lent. We have a little bit of ordinary time, and I'll talk about ordinary time in just a second. But then that leads us into Lent. And Lent is this time where the church, again, the history of the church has said, this is a time where we're going to focus on reflection, penitence, taking this posture of recognizing who we are before God and that without God's grace, we are nothing. And it's this time of self-reflection and repentance and, and typically a time of fasting, eliminating something from our lives so that we can focus more on God. And then after that, we have a focused time of, again, celebration, Easter. We celebrate resurrection. And so it's this time where the church has said, this is a time where we celebrate and then uh, at, the, at the end of Easter, we have Pentecost. It's not up there, uh, but we have a time of Pentecost when we celebrate just who we are as a church. This is the birth of the church, and so we celebrate that. And then you have this huge chunk of ordinary time. And you know this because in your life, there's just ordinary time in your life, right? Where there's nothing, nothing fancy happening, there's nothing exciting. It's just ordinary life. And so in the church calendar, liturgical calendar, we've built in this time of ordinary time where we recognize that this is a posture of just, this is just ordinary. It doesn't have to be any exciting thing, but it's just ordinary. And historically, the church in this time has focused on a time of just kind of discipleship and growth throughout this ordinary time. Ecclesiastes, you've heard this before, but Ecclesiastes says that there is a time for everything. Right? There's a time for mourning and there's a time for dancing. There's a time for weeping and a time for laughing. There's a time for embrace and there's a time for refrain. The liturgical calendar kind of gives us a rhythm for these different seasons. I don't know about you, but left to my own desires, I would probably miss some of these postures that the church has said is significant, right? Because I may get into this mode where like all I want to do is I want to grieve and I want to lament, and that's all I want to do, right? And, that, and left to my own desires, that's may, that may be what I do. But when the church has come together and said, no, this is a time where it's important to celebrate, we need to take time to rejoice, even in the midst of our feeling of grief and lament. We need to take time to celebrate. We need to take time to rejoice. It's good to be reminded. It's good to be guided in these things. So I truly hope that when you think of the liturgical calendar, when you think of the, the church calendar in these seasons, I truly hope that you don't think that this is just stale tradition that is meaningless to who we are today. Rather, I would like you to think of this as joining in with the church universal, much like we do when we, when we pray the prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. We are joining together with church tradition and church history, and we are joining into the universal church in these different postures and these different seasons. All right? Unconnection moment, sermon time. Are we good? Are we good? Okay, good deal. Good, good. Super. I didn't do a wardrobe change in case you thought I did. I didn't. I'm still in the same thing. So today, in the world of church calendar, again, I told you this kind of flows together. In the world of church calendar, today is actually a significant day. It's called a feast day, and it's the feast day of Christ the King. So this is actually the last feast day that has been added to the church calendar. This was added to the church calendar uh, in the 1920s. And so what this, was, what this did, it was created, Christ the King Sunday, uh, was created as this special day to kind of remind us, what do you think it was reminding us of? It's called Christ the King Sunday. What do you think it's reminding us of? This is, again, this isn't a trick question. That Christ is the King. Yes. Yes, thank you, Thad. You got me there. We're celebrating that Christ is the King. 
It's a day that was set up to remind us that Christ is the king. Now, there's some fascinating history and kind of uh, background of why it was created uh, and why it was called Christ the king and why it was felt that we needed to remind that. I'm not going to go into that because we've got other things I'm going to talk about. But, but essentially, it was a time where, um, where there were some allegiances that seemed to uh, be elsewhere other than Christ. Right, be, it, be it political parties or, uh, or worldly kind of kingdoms or ideologies. And so, uh, so Christ the King Sunday was created as this feast day to remind us that Christ is the King. There's no other King than Jesus. To remind us that we do not fall into the way or the kingdom of the world, but we as Christ followers, we serve a different kind of King in a different kind of kingdom. And so the church calendar culminates here. It culminates with recognizing Jesus as our king. And then we flip the calendar into a new year with Advent. So with this idea of Christ the king in mind, I want to look at just a couple different interactions that Jesus had that I think will give us a better idea of the implications of recognizing Christ as the king. So we say Christ is the king, and we celebrate Christ the king Sunday. What exactly does that mean for us? What are those implications? And we'll start with an interaction that's found in John chapter 18. If you want to flip there and follow along, you're more than welcome to, uh, but I'll read it in just a minute. And so Jesus' life on earth at this time was coming to a close. Uh, he was brought by the Jews to Pilate for some punishment. Now, in their system of, of kind of religion and the way that things were set up, um, they, the, the Jews, they really had no way to exercise authority over Jesus. They really had no way to, uh, to, to bring about significant punishment or consequences for what Jesus was doing. And so they brought him to someone who could. They brought him to the Romans. Specifically in this, what we're about ready to read, there's a kind of a, uh, a progression of, of people that Jesus was brought before. But in this moment, specifically, Jesus is brought before Pilate. Again, the Jews, they really wanted to exercise power and authority over Jesus, but they just didn't have that. And so they brought him to someone who could. And so we'll pick up the story in John chapter 18, starting in verse 33. John 18, uh, starting verse 33, says this. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So we see in this story, we see this interaction between Jesus and Pilate. And we see that in this story, Pilate seems to be a bit confused of why he's even involved in this. Why is he even doing this? And, and, and Pilate, though, is not one to turn down a, a good opportunity to exercise power and authority over someone. 
And so he obliges the people. He's going to bite. He's going to, he's going to give into this. And he's going, to, he's going to do what these people say. He's going to give into this. And so what he does is he asks this question. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, I want you to notice something in the way that Jesus responds here. Notice how immediately Jesus responds in a way that is very clear that he is not interested in engaging in a power struggle. You've been in a power struggle with someone, right? Where you just, like, you just have to win, right? And you're going to pull out all the stops and you have, if, you've, if you have kids, you've probably been in a power struggle at some point, right? Jesus is not interested in that. He has no interest at all in a power struggle. He's not giving in to this win-at-all-cost mentality. He simply says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were so, my people would fight back for me. They'd come to my defense. They would have engaged in your desired power struggle. They would have tried to prove our dominance, but that's not who I am. It is not so with me, and it is not so with my kingdom. Jesus has no interest in, in, in entering into this power struggle of this fight, of this argument of proving who he is and, and calling his people to his defense so that they would come storming down and they would rescue Jesus. Jesus has no interest in that because it's not so with him and it's not so with his kingdom. But as we see this story go on, Jesus does eventually declare his kingship. But this interaction then begs the question, what kind of king? And what kind of kingdom is Jesus setting up? What is this king? Because it's totally unrecognizable by Pilate, and it's totally unrecognizable by the people. What kind of king and what kind of kingdom? It turns out the answer to that question is the very thing that Jesus had been trying to show and teach all throughout his earthly ministry it seemed that the people were just not getting it. So let's explore those questions just a minute. What kind of king? What kind of kingdom are we talking about? And to do that, I want to flip back and I want to look at another interaction between Jesus and some of his disciples. It's in Mark chapter 10, and, and I'll read that in just a second. But if we go back to children, we talked about children with, uh, with power struggles. I'm just going to, I'm going to throw out, my, my kids aren't here in the morning, in the uh, first service, and so uh, I'm just going to pick on them a little bit. Is that cool? I'm just kidding. I'm not going to pick on them. But if you have children, I think you know what it's like here to continuously give an instruction and like you're certain that they totally understand, right? Like you, they get it. They get it. And then they go off and like are completely clueless. And you're like, what is happening? Like, my, my two-year-old, Logan, he's great, but he asked the same question over and over and over. And like, Logan, I just answered you. I, I gave you the answer. How are you not understanding this? How do you not get this? It can be exhausting. Sometimes when I read the story of Jesus and I read his interactions with his disciples, I feel like Jesus is the dad and his disciples are the toddler kids. Like, especially Peter, Right? Like, you just don't understand what I'm talking, how many times do I have to tell you, how many times do I have to answer, how many times do I have to give you the same thing, and you're just not getting it. This passage in Mark chapter 10 is one of those moments. 
Jesus had been doing his earthly ministry. Uh, he had gone about, he was healing, and he was teaching, and, uh, and the disciples were following him. Uh, he's headed into Jerusalem at this point. He's nearing the end of his life, and he's headed toward Jerusalem. His disciples are following him. Jesus knows exactly what he's walking into. He knows the fate that is before him. Uh, in fact, he predicts it in this passage. Um, but his disciples still aren't sure why. They're still not sure exactly what's going on, but they're going to follow. They've been following Jesus. They're not going to stop now. And they're following Jesus into Jerusalem. Again, as they're walking, Jesus makes his third and final prediction about what's ready to happen. He makes his third and most detailed uh, prediction about what is going to happen, how his life is going to end. He's going to be murdered, and then he's going to be raised to life. He makes this third prediction, and then it's in this response to that prediction that we find this next passage that I want to look at. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45. Again, this is in response as Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem, the disciples are following, and he's just made his third prediction about what's going to happen to him. Listen to the response. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they asked, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Speaking of children, right? That's a pretty childish way to make a, make a request there. They replied, let one of us sit at your, your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptized baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples, in their way of responding to this, they say, Jesus we want you to do whatever it is that we want you to do for us. Of course, Jesus isn't going to fall into that game, right? He's like, you got you to tell me. I'm not going to just give a blanket yes to saying, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Like, you got to name it. Tell me what it is that you want. And they say, we want to be on your right and on your left when you enter into your glory. James and John, they wanted to be in power with Jesus. He wanted them to give them status and give them position and give them authority and give them greatness. And Jesus answers with a question, like Jesus usually does. And he says, can you drink the cup that I will drink? And can you be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now, surprisingly, the disciples answer with a heartily, yes, yeah, we can do that. 
Right? And Jesus, maybe even more surprisingly, kind of agrees with them. He's like, yeah, yeah, you will. You're going you're gonna to drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from. You're going to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized. That is really difficult to say. Baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Jesus says, yeah, you can do that. You're going to do that. Right? But his agreement stops there. He says, to sit at the right and at the left, to be put into those positions of authority and power and greatness and status and position, to, to do that, Jesus says, that's not for me to give. That's not mine to give you. And you can't help but sense the exasperation and the frustration in Jesus. After all of this time together, his disciples were still not getting it. They still weren't understanding what Jesus was up to. They still weren't understanding what kind of king Jesus was and what kind of kingdom Jesus was setting up. But what they wanted wasn't actually absurd. What they wanted was actually based on this common understanding of the Messiah. It was the idea that this Messiah that they had waited for, this Messiah that they had longed for, the Messiah that, they had, that had been prophesied about, that this Messiah would be the king that they had been waiting for. Back in the day when they, when they demanded that God give them a king, and God said, you don't really know what you're talking, you don't really know what you're wanting, you don't want a king, and he finally relents and he gives them the kings, and, and king after king has failed them in different ways, and this Messiah that they were longing for, this Messiah that they were hoping for, would finally be the king that they had been longing for. The king that would return the people of God to greatness, to status, to position, to authority, that they would take care of this people. This was the understanding of the Messiah that was common. They would return them to their rightful position. And so James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they wanted in, naturally, they wanted in on this action. They wanted in on this glory. They wanted to make sure that they were taken care of. Now, in other versions of the story, it's kind of fascinating because who makes this request? It's not James and John. It's actually their mom. Like, you know, you send mom in for the, for the big ask, right? Like, you, you, I, I love my mom, man. If I want something, I'm going to my mom, right? So James and John's mom is actually the one who's making this request. In this, in this particular instance of the, the telling of the story, it's James and John themselves. But they wanted in on this action. They wanted in on this authority. They wanted to make sure they were taken care of. They wanted to make sure that they had their position of authority in this kingdom. But they weren't the only ones. We see that the disciples were mad, right? The scripture says they were indignant. Now, they weren't mad. They weren't frustrated for the same reason that Jesus was. They weren't frustrated because these disciples just weren't getting it, right? Why were they mad? Because they didn't think of asking this first. Right? And so if James and John are going to be at the right and the left, then there's no right and left left for the rest of us. Right? And so they're mad. They're mad at James and John. They want in on the action. They want to make sure that they're taken care of as well. And there's just so much irony in this story. Take a look back at just the last couple of chapters of some of the things that had happened. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, uh, Jesus uh, this, Jesus had just uh, rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have the th- mind in, in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And it's right after this that Jesus says, If anyone wants to come after me, what do you got to do? You got to lay down your cross. Sorry, you got to pick up your cross and you got to carry. You got to lay down your life for me. If you're going to follow me, you've got to lay down your life. You got to sacrifice everything. And in Mark chapter 9, 
verse 35, uh, Jesus and the disciples are, are uh, the disciples are kind of arguing about who is greatest. Who is going to be greatest among them? And Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And then he, there's kids involved, and he said, man, if you don't welcome the children, if you don't welcome those who have no, in this culture, who have no position and no status and no significance and no authority, if you don't welcome them, them in, then you have no part in the kingdom of God. Next chapter, in Mark chapter 10, again, there's this interaction with Jesus and the disciples, and there's kids involved, and Jesus says, in fact, if you don't even become like children, if you don't even become like children who, again, have no position, have no authority, have no status, have no significance, if you don't even become like children, you have no place in my kingdom. And a few verses later in Mark chapter 10, we see this interaction with Jesus uh, interacting with the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and kind of says, what's my next step? Like, what's my next step in, in, my, in, my, in my relationship with God? Like, what is, what is my next step? And Jesus talks about the, the commands and the great commands. And, and the rich young ruler says, yeah, I've done that. I'm good. I've, I've got that. So what's next for me? Jesus says to go and sell all of your possessions. To go, and, to go and offer up, to go and get rid of all of the things that give you, once again, status, power, authority, position, greatness in your life. Give up all of those things so that you can follow me. And what is the response of the rich young ruler? He walks away dejected because he had great things. He had lots of things and status and position. Scattered out throughout the re- through these stories, Jesus makes three predictions about what is going to happen to him. That he is going to lay down his life and he's going to be crucified. And he makes these predictions in the midst of these teachings about what the kingdom of God is like. And this is the request that James and John make to Jesus. After all of this teaching, after all of this after all of this talk about laying down your life, about picking up your cross, about becoming like children, about doing away with the things that make you significant and great. After all of those talks, the request of James and John is we want to make sure that our positions of greatness are secure. We want you to make us great. We want you to glorify us. We want you to let us in on the power that is coming your way. We want to make sure that we get what's coming to us. Right, like We've sacrificed a lot to follow you these last three years. We've had your back this whole time. It's the least that you can do. Let us sit at your right and your left. And Jesus, again, in no doubt, a moment of frustration and just thinking, are we really doing this again? Gives this response in verse 42 and 45, through 45. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles... Lord it over them. In other words, you know the way that the kingdom of the world operates. You know the way this goes in other kingdoms that aren't the kingdom of heaven. They lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. But Jesus, in a moment of invitation, in a moment of instruction, says this, not so with you. Not so 
with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, you want, you want greatness? You want glory? You want power? You want authority? You want all the things that we associate with kings and kingdoms? I've been trying to tell you all along. Greatness is found in the suffering servant. Greatness is found in the laying down of our life, of, of my life in order to, to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. Greatness is found in, in giving up the, your, my life for the sake of others. Greatness is found in the suffering servant. That's the greatness of the kingdom of God. That is the way of Christ. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. Not a warrior king who exercises dominance and authority over people, but a suffering servant. Later on in the book of Mark, there's this seemingly minor detail that Mark writes about. But I think that this minor detail gets at the heart of this question. What kind of king? What kind of kingdom? It's as Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's uh, getting ready to breathe his last breath. It's in Mark chapter 15. Let me just read that for you really quick. Mark chapter 15. Again, Jesus is on the cross getting ready to breathe his last breath. And he says this. Sorry, I'm on the wrong page. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those standing near, uh, near heard, the, heard this. They said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, the soldier, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. The centurion soldier seems to be the first one in the book of Mark that, that really grasps what kind of king King Jesus is. What kind of kingdom Jesus is setting up. When he heard his cry and he saw how he died, he said, surely this man is the son of God. Notice what wasn't the clarifying moment for this soldier. It wasn't Jesus coming into power. It wasn't Jesus defeating the Romans. It wasn't Jesus waging a war. It wasn't even Jesus conquering death. It wasn't even Jesus ascending into glory. The giveaway for this soldier, when he recognized that this was surely the Son of God, was the way that Jesus died. King Jesus is displayed most prominently in the suffering servant. The suffering servant who laid down his life for the sake of others. 
But Jesus doesn't stop with this simple clarifying statement about who he was and what he was up to, what kind of king he was. Embedded in this interaction is an invitation for his disciples. It's an invitation to join in the way of Christ. In verse 43, again, he's just painted this picture, reminded them of the way that the Gentiles do things. That they exercise power and authority over people. They undermine people in order to gain position and status. And in verse 43, Jesus says, not so with you. It's an invitation for the disciples in the text, but it's also an invitation for you and me. Because if we're really honest, we probably find ourselves misunderstanding the way of Christ more than we like. We probably long for Jesus to be our warrior king more often than we'd like to admit. The king who will fight on on our behalf so that our needs are taken care of. So that our way of life will be protected to make sure that our positions and power and authority are totally secure. We're in the same place as the disciples where sometimes we're just not getting it. And we're faced with asking a similar question that Pilate asked. Pilate asks the question, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? And we're faced with a question too. We must ask ourselves, Jesus, are you my king? Have I fully submitted myself to your reign? And if so, then the invitation that's extended to the disciples is the same invitation that is extended to us. The invitation is this. The way of the kingdom of the world is not so with you. Rather, to live in the kingdom of Christ the King is this. Whoever wants to become great among you must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be Slave of all. The type of king that Jesus is and the type of king that he established was totally unrecognizable by Pilate. And the truth is, is it's totally unrecognizable today in a world that revolves around power and status and position. It's the type of king that is revealed in the way Jesus died. In his suffering. The suffering servant. To recognize Christ as king is to join with the suffering servant who was willing to lay down his life for the sake of other people. That is what it means to declare Christ is king. And so this morning, we're going to respond by participating in communion. Communion is... Yes, a celebration and a, and a reminder of who Christ is. It's celebration and it's a reminder that Christ is our king. It's a way to declare that Christ is king. But communion is more than just being reminded about something or making a statement about something. To participate in communion is a way that we physically participate in the works of Jesus. That we physically and actually participate in Christ's kingdom. It's a way to actively participate in the kingdom that is most most prominently pictured by the suffering servant. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I'm going to invite you 
to reflect on the question, is Jesus my king? And if Jesus is my king, then that means that I am I am invited to participate in this kingdom, the kingdom that says not so with you. It's unrecognizable by the world. It's not the way we do things here on earth, but it's the way that God calls us to. Jesus, thank you so much for your love, for your grace. Thank you that you were willing to, willing to be the suffering servant on our behalf, that you would willingly lay down your life on our behalf. Well, Jesus, I don't want to just thank you and remember that. God, I want to actively participate in that kind of kingdom. So whatever that looks like, whatever that means, would you make it so in my life? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to come from the back and receive the elements and return to your seat, and then I'll give you further instructions. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, on the night where his full representation of his kingship was put on display, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. God, again, we thank you. Um, We thank you that Jesus is king. We thank you that you have invited us to a different way of living. We do not have to fall into the way of the world that we get to, we get to enter into your kingdom. We get to live as citizens in your kingdom, and that means that it affects the way that we live. It affects the way that we do things. Thank you for that invitation. Jesus, we praise you as king. We praise you as ruler, as the, as, as the one who reigns in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless.